You ready to do this? I was born ready. Were you? Oh, yes. Where were you born? New Delhi, India. I want to hear about that. Well, I was born on a hot summer day in New Delhi, India, and my life, which I call the Bhavashit show, started as one. I was switched at birth. My grandmother had a nightmare about that, and everybody made fun of her until it happened. Switch with birth means means like somebody took the baby and gave it to the wrong parents? That is correct. Introduce yourself. Who <laughs> we talked to? I'm Brian. I'm the producer of uh, the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast, and uh, I came in here to help her kick things off. I don't think she needs much help, so if you hear my voice from time to time, it's mostly just uh, encouragement. But who are you? I am Dr. Kaval Bhava, also known as Dr. Sex Fairy, of course. <laughs> Of course. Of course. I'm special. Yeah. I sprinkle magic dust. All right. So let's get back to India there. So you were born in India and switched at birth. That's right. Please continue. I need to hear more about that. Well, you know, I come from a family rooted in the military and academia, and my grandfather was a general, and that's how I was born at the Army Hospital in New Delhi. And you think that when it's the Army involved, things are more disciplined and there are fewer screw-ups. Well, not so. They switched me with the wrong child, and my mother distinctly remembered as she woke up from the haze of a C-section back in the days when they didn't do epidurals, and she remembered seeing a different baby. And when she woke up, everybody told her she was just loopy from anesthesia, and this was her baby, and she said, oh, I don't think so. So she argued with my father, who had seen original me, and said that the baby looked nothing like the family. My father thought she'd lost her mind, that maybe the anesthesia hadn't yet worn off, and my mom insisted that he was crazy. So, of course, marriage issues began right away. You know, children do start that. And then half the family had seen original me. Half the family had seen new me. And you can imagine the chaos that ensued. So the Bava shit show was alive and well right from the start. <laughs> so do you take any responsibility for this? Oh, no, sir, I don't. <laughs> But hey, I ended up with the right people eventually, and the rest is history. And I often wonder how life would have turned out had I not gone with my right family. What would life have been if I'd gone with the other family, you so know? you have no clue who the other family is? Not a clue. There's no way to track them down. No way. It was a thousand years ago. Yeah, you wonder how often that happens. You know, you I worked really in wonder. many hospitals. Does that happen? It is a chaotic, stressful environment. Anything can happen. It is chaos, happen. and that's why it's a good thing to have name bands. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. So tell me, tell us more about your uh, your journey. I know it's a long, a bit uh, circuitous journey to get to Doctor Sex Fairy point point. But how do you get from uh, born in India, possibly switched at birth, thankfully not, to this point? Well, it's a complicated story. I took the scenic route to being the Doctor Sex Fairy. Of course, I was blessed to be born into the family I was. My paternal great grandfather he was an English professor, college principal. My mother tells me that he would read The Solitary Reaper to me as I would stare at him from my crib. And I ended up getting two degrees in English literature before I went to med school. And my paternal grandfather, as I mentioned, was a serving general in the Indian Army. And my maternal grandfather was an aeronautical engineer. So if you think about it, I ended up getting lots of English degrees and then had a passion for aviation and wanted to be a fighter pilot. So nature over nature, I guess we'll never know. What I do know is that I was born into a family that has shaved much of who I am. Which is? Which is <laughs> Dr. Sex Fairy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I'm in many ways a carbon copy of my dad. He raised me to be a hardworking person, a high achiever, 
I remember one day very clearly, I was about five years old. He told me to go study for my spelling test, and I was a brat, and I told him that I didn't need to. I was smart enough, knew my stuff. I did. But he told me to go study harder vocabulary. I thought that was ridiculous, and I said, and why would I do that? And my father immediately put me in his car, took me to a slum in New Delhi, Mm -hmm. and showed me how the rest of the world lived. Sidebar, why are Indian children so good at spelling? We're just smart, what can I say? But there's a lot of smart cultures. The Indians particularly dominate the spelling bee, at least the, the famous ones. They're almost always won by, won by an Indian. Is, there, is, it, is it cultural? Is it spelling is important? You know, I've never asked myself that question, but it's true. We do tend to win the spelling bee. Hmm. Not sure why. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, not to get I just think we're special. Yeah, you could be special, and obviously you're very, very smart, but uh, spelling beat a sex fair, you know? Yeah, I've come, you know, a long way. What can I say? And I do spell well, so there is that. But, you know, like I was saying, um, he took me there, and it was a wake-up call. He never, ever forced me to become a doctor, never pressured me in any way to be a doctor, but mediocrity was never an option. He made it very clear that whatever career path I chose, I was going to be great at it. I had to excel. There was no other way. And looking back, I truly believe that had my father not been by my side spurring me on to fly higher and higher, I would not be who I am today. You know, my paternal grandfather, my maternal grandfather, my great-grandfather, my mom, a strong woman, businesswoman, teacher, all of those things, high academic expectations of me. Where would I be without these people in my life? At what age did you think, you're like, I think I want to be a doctor? It started early. My grandfather had cancer. And while I didn't understand the details, I knew there was something wrong with him. And everybody had told me that eating my vegetables would make me strong. So I decided that I was going to feed him a lot of vegetables. And I knew that all my medicines were in liquid form. So my little child brain thought that that's how I was going to help him. And I would mix in this disgusting mix I would make of vegetables and water. And I would feed it to him. And the poor man, God bless him, would eat it. Slash drink it. I don't know what to call that slush I used to make. But I was trying to make him better, and my desire to heal began really that early. Hmm. Healing and answering a question and in some ways solving a puzzle. That's right. Did you have any idea which field you wanted to go in? What what kind of medicine? Do most doctors know that? Or they get assigned things and they become, you know, a foot doctor? Well, do, do they grow up wanting to deal with feet, or is it just that's a good question. They have a See, I have a thing about foot fungus, so that was never going to be my field. Okay, so you cross, you eliminate things. I was things. eliminated. <laughs> Uh, I could never be a dentist because the sound of that drill made me want to kill myself. Right. So that wouldn't have worked Mm -hmm. very well, listening to that drill every day. Right. But uh, being a doctor, well, being a medical doctor was definitely something I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And while I eventually found that I still loved the kids, the mothers drove me crazy. Mm -hmm. And while I'm a mother myself, I just couldn't handle the mothers. You know, when they walk in and they tell you, I need amoxicillin for my kid. Right. And they don't tell you the complaint. They just want the drug first. Right. Drove me nuts. Couldn't do it. They want to work from the drug backwards. Oh, yeah. That wasn't my way of doing things. So that would not have gone very well. Huh. So then I was in um, a biology course, and I took a course where I was allowed to do an internship. I could go follow a doctor for a semester, and I had to write um, a paper at the end of it. And I went and followed a trauma surgeon. I thought that the head of biology had lost his mind when he assigned me to trauma surgery, but I was hooked. I was in love. That was my calling. I loved surgery. I loved being there. I loved the chaos of the ER. 
That was me. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. I went from thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician to being all in, gung-ho, into emergency medicine, trauma. That was my thing. Huh. So the uh, you have chaos, you have personalities, you have screaming people, you have pain. And I was all in. And you were all in. That was my, that excited that was my you. world. They were my people. Huh. At, at what age did you come to America? 21. And you came to where? I started out in North Carolina. I attended the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, did my pre-medical studies there, then came to Fort Lauderdale, Nova Southeastern College of Osteopathic Medicine. Had you ever visited America before you came? I had visited once before I moved here. And what was the biggest difference upon landing on these shores? I had never seen so many fat people. (laughs) Can I say that? Yes, you can. Um, I say that sometimes too. I think Americans don't understand. That is true. So many fat people. Oh my goodness. And I went to Vegas for a trade show. And as I saw those lines inside the buffets, I thought, oh my God, they have no business eating. They need to just stop. And I was told, don't say that. Don't say that. People Mm -hmm. will get offended. I said, well, Americans seem to get offended with a lot of things. Yes. So I had to stop saying a lot of things that I thought were quite okay. Mm-hmm. They were very um, hush-hush in this country, interestingly enough. Race is one of those issues. Mm-hmm. In India, we have many religions and many races, but race is not something we have a fight about, if you think about it. Hmm. We don't care if somebody's our version of the whites, our version of the blacks. We have you know, our you know, version of you know, the quote-unquote Asians, even though we're Asians, mm-hmm. you know, what you consider Asians here. Right. We have every race in India. We There's just don't still give a the damn. caste system, though? I don't uh, think so. Not race? as much anymore. No. No, I think we kill each other with religion. That's our insanity. I mean, every mm-hmm. culture has one. Right. Ours is, is religion, not race. We don't care about race. I huh. still don't understand the fuss about race. Yeah, I know. I, I don't understand either. But in America, so you so you looked at the, you weren't like, uh, oh, the, the buildings or the cars or whatever. You looked at the challenges, the health challenges. That's the first thing you noticed when you came to America. That's the first thing I noticed. I'd never seen so many fat, unhealthy people. They were walking up and down those casinos, huffing and puffing. Uh And I thought, did you consider putting that donut down? (laughs) Put that tall, you know, drink, you know, those big bong looking drinks they have with the long straws. I was like, put it down for Uh the love of God. Yeah. Consider being healthy for once. Yeah. An outsider's perspective could probably, that that, that does change the world. Uh Mm-hmm. So you go from Charlotte to where? Charlotte to Fort Lauderdale. Completed medical school. And then it was interesting. I hated being cold. And I always said that I would never live in a cold place. I mean, New Delhi gets cold, but it never snows. I had never driven in snow, never had to do much of anything in snow. Vacationing doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And then I moved into the snow belt in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh. And my first winter there, I looked at my Ray-Bans and wondered when I'd last worn them. Couldn't remember. (laughs) And then I just, for shits and giggles, decided to Google the temperature in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh Cleveland was colder. And then I officially (laughs) wanted to kill myself. So what were you doing? Then you dove into your career and you were busy, right? I was a busy girl. And what were you doing in Cleveland? I was doing my residency at the Cleveland Clinic. It was very prestigious. It was a lot of work. Patients that other hospitals would ship out, we were receiving. So we were seeing the sickest of sick. These were challenging patients. I could not have asked for a better training, a better education. And then in my spare time, what little I did have, this is pre-children, of course, I would go do runs with the East Cleveland Fire Department. And that was incredible, incredible experience and learning. I saw things that 
I never thought I would, including one time. I mean, talk about crazy incidents that happened during my residency. We were called to the jail once. The jail was next door to the point that we shared a wall with the jail. So we get a call. I'm mighty excited. My first time in a jail. Hey, it doesn't take much to get me excited. So I wanted to see the inside of a jail, and mm-hmm. off I went. We took our medical bags, and now picture this. There's a woman, probably 300 pounds, wearing a bra, about 20 sizes too small. She had taken her top off, and there she was, hyperventilating on the floor, faking an asthma attack. It was pretty obvious. It didn't take rocket science to figure that out. And she's huffing and puffing, and, you know, we were her get-out-of-jail card, except, unfortunately for her, she called on the wrong shift. They had an ER doctor with this crew. Uh-huh. So I tried to get her to answer questions. She would not stop. Finally, I yelled out, and I said, hey. And she looks at me, and I told her to stop her little act. And she looked at me with a death glare and started cursing me out in full sentences. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have an asthma attack, you know, last I heard, you couldn't speak in full sentences. Mm-hmm. And I refused to transport her. But that name, that incident got me the name of Dr. Firecrack in the fire department. Oh, Another alter ego. Yeah, another alter ego. See, there are many of me. I have many personalities. (laughs) What can I say? But uh, when I was leaving Cleveland, my fire department friends, I mean, they literally became friends and brothers to me. When I was leaving, they called me to the fire department, and they gave me my own East Cleveland Fire Department hoodie. Mm -hmm. And it said on the side, Lieutenant Firecracker. Oh. So that is something I keep with great pride in my closet and look at it from time to time and smile when I remember the lady at the prison. Now, not to fast forward your for, your story too much, but that's still Dr. Firecracker a long way, I think, or maybe it's a short jump to Dr. Sex Fairy. Well, you know, it's the same genre of personality. It's somebody who wants to get in the wants to muck. get in the muck <laughs> and wants to change things and cannot tolerate the status quo. And what did you see as the, as the, what was the change that you thought you needed to make and how did you first see that change? What was something you're like, you know, and I, I think I can make a difference here. You know, interestingly enough, it started with hair loss. I suffered from hair loss. I should say I suffer from hair loss because it's always, a, it's something that's lifelong. You just control it. You never cure it. So I didn't Indian hair is valuable. It is. So I hear. (laughs) See, I should have saved it when I had cancer. I could have made some money off my own wig. Um, But, you know, I decided that something had to change. And I went and got a hair transplant. I was one of 40% of women who have visible hair loss by the age of 40. People don't realize that. Is that alopecia or is it something else? You know, different forms of hair loss. But it's pretty obvious for 40% of women by the age of 40. Those are alarming statistics. So instead of suffering in silence, I fixed my hair. That didn't go quite so well, didn't really fix it. It complicated things a little. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, my God, this is horrible. You know, the Bava shit show at play again. I could do this better. Mm -hmm. And because of my emergency medicine and surgery training, I really could do this. I went and got trained, went back to training, got trained in hair transplant surgery, got very interested also in non-surgical hair restoration. And here was the thing. I was making people look great with their hair, but the face still looked like hell. So <laughs> what do you do with your great hair? If your face still looks you like you got hair comb, comb over your face. Yeah. yeah. So I got into extensive facial rejuvenation with you know, state-of-the-art technology, laser surgery, those kinds of things. I didn't really believe that. I should have to cut people's faces. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to cut my own. 
I felt that enough could be done non-surgically. And that sent me down a path of, you know, more rejuvenation. But the sex fairy part came because over the years as an ER doctor, I had seen a lot of patients come in for sexual issues. You know that show, Sex Took Me to the ER? Right. I always assumed that was somebody sticking something in the wrong place. Well, there's plenty of that, I promise you. <laughs> oh, oh, there I is. That you. really happens. Oh, yes. I have seen men come in with vibrators still vibrating in their butts. I can't make that stuff up. It's real. Oh, no. You know, that show exists for Just a wait until the batteries run out? Oh, my God. And sometimes they do. Okay. And sometimes they take Miralax, you know, the laxative, thinking yeah. they're going to poop it out, but that doesn't quite work. Oh. So, yeah, you see all kinds of things. So what really irritated me was that a lot of men would come in and complain about not being able to get an erection. And I'm thinking to myself, are you an idiot? Did you miss that emergency part of emergency medicine? Well, How she's right this? there waiting. I've got, well, see, I got that's 20 the minutes. Thing. That's the thing. <laughs> emergency so, and urgency. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I was like, what idiots? But, you know, one came, another came. Or didn't come, I should say. Right. See, fun unintended. Um, so this happened more and more often. And I started thinking, wait a minute. If this many people are coming in, there's clearly a problem. So I would ask them, haven't you talked to your family doctor? Have you considered talking to a urologist? Or for women who were coming in with sexual issues, sister, seriously, do you not have a gynecologist you go to every year? Mm. And, you know, I got all kinds of interesting replies to that. And it seems to me that this was a pandemic all its own. We talk about COVID, but sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. is a pandemic all its own and very underreported. So these people were initially not even accepting themselves that they had a problem. When they would finally admit to themselves that they had a problem, they'd go to their doctor, but their doctor would blow them off. Or in some cases with the men, it was very easy to give them Viagra Cialis. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem with that. People don't realize that sometimes... You can have too much of a good thing. Mm -hmm. That erection that you think makes you feel like, I'm the man, mm -hmm. sometimes doesn't go away. And mm. initially you that think that's... painful. Well, initially they're delighted. Oh. Because it makes them realize, ooh, I'm a stud muffin, baby. <laughs> and then they say, oh, shit, this isn't going away. Mm -hmm. Now that starts a cascade effect. Oh, my God, now what do I do? What do I do? They panic. They stop thinking straight. Sometimes they'll call their doctor. Sometimes they'll just sit there and pickle. And... You know, sometimes a day might pass. And now, jokes apart, there's long-term damage. So if it goes more than four hours, I think that's on the label, call you know, a physician. There are issues, but, but they don't do that at that point. they're embarrassed? They're just, well, they're embarrassed. They don't always think it's a problem. They think the rules don't apply to them, and they're just frankly delighted most of the time. Yeah. You know, the lady is impressed. They mm -hmm. think this is what's supposed to happen. Oh. So, yeah. So then I realized that while they were going to get help, they were getting Band-Aids. And I knew there had to be a better way. And that's where I came in. I showed them that there was a better way. There was a way to improve their sexual life, their sexual function. And not just sexual function, it's also about intimate wellness. Uh -huh. Because women who have vaginal issues may have a significant incontinence. And that may make them very embarrassed in a sexual situation. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking that you're smelling of urine, for instance, you're not going to be very happy letting a man go down on you. He's going to take it personally. Mm -hmm. And that snowballs into a whole other issue. Right. So lots of issues here at play. So you went from liking the, ex the excitement of trauma and ER to 
getting into an area where um, confidence was lacking, if you want to talk about facial aesthetics and, and hair. Absolutely. Which sort of morphs into the lack of confidence to either communicate their problems or to address them leads you back to ER and, and trauma in some ways. Too. You know, it was like a vicious circle. I mean, one thing just kept leading to another. And it was one of those things where, you know, they didn't have confidence, so they weren't having good sex. They weren't having good sex, so they didn't have a good relationship. And now they certainly weren't going to have good sex. Mm-hmm. So it just became one of those things where I felt that if I could give them confidence back in their looks mm-hmm. and in the bedroom, I was truly improving their quality of life. That's what it came down to, quality of life. Is sex something that is less likely to be talked about in an Indian household than an American household? Oh, yeah. It is. So that's not me stereotyping and judging. No, I don't think so. I think that it's definitely more hush-hush, but I do think that is changing to quite an extent. Mm -hmm. Back when I was a lot younger and I was in my teens, things were different. Now, things are more open. Now people are more openly living together before marriage. Those things are happening, but it's still a more traditional society. Mm -hmm. So did part of that trigger an excitement in you that I'm going to go into a field or an area of expertise that is not what my grandfather uh, and and great-grandfather and parents and everything would have done? Does that that add to – because you clearly liked the excitement at a young age. Mm Mm-hmm. And you clearly liked some degree of chaos in a medical field, mm-hmm. like the prison and the firehouse and the trauma room. And I imagine you saw gunshots and mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You're treading into a water that has, a, that has a lot of those characteristics in it when you're just talking about sexual health. I know. Well, the thing is that while sexual health is not really discussed as much as in U.S. society, I think that my family was forward enough, educated enough, and I think evolved enough to be amused, pleasantly amused, but proud of me anyway. Uh I don't think that even my grandfather would have been horrified in any way. Uh My brother, actually, ironically enough, who is alive and well in today's society, is more horrified about Dr. Sex Fairy than I think my grandfather would have been. Well... You are changing lives. I have learned more from you in in our brief conversations as you're going down this road of your podcast. And I think most people are. They're curious. They're fascinated. They're a little excited. They're a little embarrassed. There's so many emotions that go into just having these conversations or raising these questions that usually make people not raise these questions or have these conversations. That's true. And that's part of the challenge, right? Yes. And in fact, I wondered myself if I really wanted to go down this road. Because as a Cleveland Clinic trained physician, you know, I've been pretty much branded the creme de la creme in medicine. Uh And I have a stellar reputation. And even many of my aesthetic patients are a little, you know, wary of the discussion. They look at me a little cross-eyed sometimes when they see what I do. Uh The irony is eventually they all want to know just a little bit more. They don't want their friend to know that they're coming to me for sexual wellness. But most of them do. And so while they may look at me with trepidation initially, Mm -hmm. I make them ask themselves questions like, oh, am I really happy in my situation? Could it be better? And darn near all of them say, I didn't realize it could be this good. I didn't realize how I had fallen into this pattern of lousy sex, a shitty relationship, 
I feel so much better. This is great. Mm-hmm. And that happens eventually. But, you know, it's been a struggle to me. Even the name of the podcast, Dr. Sex Fairy, people are uncomfortable with it. You need, because you, you constantly have to reassure them of your credentials. Yeah. And I know plastic surgeons who go through that too. And they're like, I was the top heart surgeon before I got into this. And that mm-hmm. skill set translates to what I'm doing now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm a board certified doctor. I'm Cleveland Clinic trained. I'm a U.S. trained doctor. Mm-hmm. I have all the credentials. I am helping people. Yet sex, even in the U.S., makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. I know that some people may not want to come on my podcast because of the name alone. Doctors need to... Diagnose problems and find solutions. Okay. So you found a problem that people were in an unusual way finding out that this was a common thing through the ER is a fascinating thing. It's an interesting I had no idea. Mm -hmm. You know, you always hear these uh, at the end of the year, they're like, here are the things that people came to the ER for this year and whatever. Mm -hmm. And you were seeing that firsthand and having to treat these things medically, but then you also have to think psychologically, like what is it about this that is leading to the point where they're in an emergency room situation? You kind of have to work backwards, right? Well, you're right. Because here's the thing. You can joke about it and you can, you know, make fun of the guy with the vibrator in his butt. And, you know, is it funny? Well, yeah, sometimes it's hard to control my laughter. I wonder if it's pleasurable. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Was it good before you called the ambulance? Was it good? It's it's hard. You know, sometimes as an ear doctor, it's hard to keep a straight face. You don't want to be that doctor who's laughing. It's not nice. Right. But, you know, some crazy stuff you see. But it makes you wonder what happened in that relationship that they felt the need to go down some crazy paths. I'm not judging the vibrator. Don't get me wrong. Right. But, you know, on a, on a, on a more general level, there's clearly pain. There's clearly trouble. The relationship clearly needs some help, Mm -hmm. and they're crying out for that help. Mm -hmm. And if it's crazy stuff that takes them to the ER or anything else, they want help. Relationships today are suffering. And the irony is, why not talk about it? Mm -hmm. People, look at the sex toy business. It's huge. It's huge. Clearly, people need those things and want those things, yet somehow it's not okay to talk about it. Somehow calling myself Dr. Sex Fairy is an issue. Why is that? Mm Mm-hmm. It's so hypocritical. Well, people are hypocritical. People don't want to be judged. People always hide their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses or whatever, and they put that as a somebody else's problem and not our problem. And then some, one of them uh, ends up in the in the ER with the vibrator in their butt. And then they see me, and I say, "Are you nuts?" And then I start realizing that there's a problem. And lo and behold, Doctor Sex Fairy. So, what made you do full pivot? This is where I want to go with my practice. And I know it's not all you do, but you're like, this is going to be a point of emphasis. I know the last year and a half for you has been chaotic at best. What made you be like, you know, I'm going to go down this road. You know, a lot changed for me in the last year and a half, two years. I opened my practice. I was still working emergency medicine because I do love emergency medicine. It is who I am in many ways. Um, But then COVID happened. And my practice, Bava Medical, was shut down. I continued working in the ER at that time through COVID. I mean, it was a crazy time during the initial parts of COVID. But when my practice finally opened again, and this happened very early on in the game for my practice, so opened in September of 2019, shut down in March, closed for a few months, opened again, and then, bam, I get diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, the Bava Shit Show, you see the theme here? Yeah. This is why I call it the Bava Shit Show. Now, the irony is, 
I didn't just, you know, find the lump then and get diagnosed at that point. I had found that lump almost three years prior. And I went to the doctor who blew me off, said, oh, I don't feel anything. You're fine. I said, well, I want a mammogram. Mm -hmm. You don't need a mammogram. You're not even 40 yet. I said, who gives a damn if Mm -hmm. I'm not 40? I want a mammogram. I feel a lump. I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Damn it. What does it take around here to get a damn mammogram? I'm not asking for the... And you're a doctor. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) I'm a doctor and I can't even get a damn mammogram. So I did finally convince this guy to give me a mammogram. They saw it. And then they said, ooh, that doesn't look quite right. Let's get an ultrasound. So they look at it and say, oh, it's fine. Just come back in six months and get another mammogram. So I said, well, that sounds ridiculous. If mm. it sounds, if it looks bad enough to get a mammogram in six months instead of a year, if you can six convince like an insurance company yeah, yeah. to pay for that in six months, clearly it's not normal. Mm-hmm. So why aren't we biopsying this damn thing? Right. No, 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 you don't need that. Stop being such a doctor. They scolded me. And I thought, well, maybe I am being too much of a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I come back in six months. They see it again. Now they get a second diagnostic mammogram. I said, okay, now this is getting ridiculous. Somebody needs to biopsy this thing. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's benign. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I took their word for it. And then a year later, I said, this crap ends right here, right now. I need a biopsy. It was breast cancer. Mm. And now where I had had one lump initially, now I had more. So if people learn nothing else from my podcast, learn to be an advocate for yourself. Is that a thing that they say don't get a mammogram before 40? That's absolutely true. I thought we were moving that up. 30. Well, they keep changing their mind. Do you know those doctors now? Do you have a relationship where you're like, hey, the, uh, there was something? Is, I know you don't want to get in the I told you they so disappear. business, especially as a doctor. They disappear. They do. Yeah, they're like, oh, whatever. You know, the other doctor in the practice now takes care of you because the other one can't look you in the eye anymore. Right. So, yeah. So that so had to be scary. It's a crazy time. It was as scary. A, as a business owner, as a parent, oh, as yeah. a woman. Mm-hmm. You, and as a doc, you know, you must be like, oh, this is not good. It was not good. The, you know, the cancer was aggressive. I was also a single parent. Um, my family was overseas. This was in the middle of a pandemic. The timing could not have been worse. Hmm. My family could not travel to me. My brother was in Australia under lockdown. And my mom was in India with, you know, you know how bad Indian COVID got. She yeah. couldn't travel. So I was pretty much by myself. It was horrible. You know, one of the, the the hidden or maybe not so hidden side effects of COVID is the lack of people going to get these tests and getting the mammograms oh, yeah. and getting their screenings mm-hmm. and all that. That you know, we haven't yet seen the manifestation of what that's gonna look like in two oh, three years. Oh absolutely. And do you know that COVID can also cause sexual dysfunction and hair loss? How about that? COVID getting it or COVID worrying about it? Or all <laughs> that's of it funny. or COVID getting stuck home with your mate. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of tentacles well, to the you COVID. Know. Well, that's true, very funny, very true. No, actually, uh, people who have had COVID have a higher rate of sexual dysfunction and hair loss. Because of blood flow issues? I honestly don't think anybody really understands why this happens. But people, young people who have had COVID come to my office with hair loss and more issues with sexual dysfunction, male and female. What causes hair? Is there one thing that causes hair loss? Is it a vitamin? No, I think hair loss is like a bucket with lots of holes in it. And there are many reasons why you have that leak. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do different things in my practice because I'm trying to plug those different holes. Mm -hmm. You know, some of it is genetic. You can't help that. Is hair loss a precursor to sexual dysfunction? Are they related? Or sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Maybe confidence-wise they are. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that does you have crappy too. hair. You're not going to feel very confident. True. Crappy hair, stress out, leads to all sorts of I issues. I had very crappy anxiety. hair and I fixed it. Good. And See? so when somebody comes to you and um, do couples come to you with sexual issues? I mean, Usually, you're, not a, you're not a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist, but in many ways I function as one. Right. Uh, I Please don't, nobody sue me for this. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. But, you know, part of truly helping patients is understanding why they have the dysfunction to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, my quote-unquote therapist part comes in because I can't help them if I don't understand them. Mm-hmm. Because so much of sexual dysfunction is between the ears. And how much of it is uh, living an unhealthy lifestyle? Is that number two? A lot of it is. And if you think about it, after the age of 40, more people tend to have cardiac issues, Uh heart attacks, that sort of thing. Well, more people after that age also have sexual dysfunction because flow is flow. If you Uh have blockages in the heart, you're more likely to have blockages in the groin. It's the same idea. Uh The blood vessels don't know where they are. Half of the people you deal with are women and half are men? Or is it more men? More I think, women? I or, think or is I, it more men? Who, who's more likely to... I, I guess well, people I think have, yeah. men are more likely to accept that they have a problem because with them it's obvious. Oh. Because yeah. you can't do very much if you don't have an erection. Right. Women are used to faking it to quite an extent. Right. And they don't necessarily know what they're missing. They don't know what they're missing. With a man, it's pretty obvious. If he's not getting hard... Or if he's getting hard but not lasting, right? Or there's too much downtime between, you know, erections. Mm-hmm. He's going to notice it. He's going to want to fix it. Huh. So much of male identity is rooted in their penis, and women. You know, I'm just being honest, right? From the way I see it, how much of male identity is is rooted in our penis? Because the women are also paying attention to the male. Oh, absolutely! Penis. It's terrible for a man. I feel because with a man, it's very hard to perform. Again, if, no pun. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> sometimes it's not <laughs> sometimes it's not but you know it's hard for a man to perform if he can't get that erection for a woman she can often just lie there and pretend I read somewhere that that um, impotency issues or lack of erections and all this is starting earlier in our society just like a lot of medical problems it is coming earlier guys are taking Viagra at fraternity parties now and it screws their it screws them up. Do you know up. that 20% of men in their 20s suffer from erectile dysfunction? Is that more anxiety related? No. No. It's no. just it's a blood it's a medical issue. It's a blood it's flow issue. It's a medical issue. issue. So it's a blood flow issue. It's it's actual biology, it's not just mental. So mm. 20% of men in their 20s, 30% in their 30s, everybody thinks that this happens at 50. Yeah. It doesn't. It starts a lot younger. Well, to and to go back to your Cialis Viagra thing, what that did do was turn the light on for a lot of men who, who you know, 40 years ago, over 70, over 80, n- nobody was doing anything. Mm-hmm. So it did bring a lot of people back into the bedroom who were gone, oh, male and yeah. female. Hell yeah. I have patients who are 70-ish and having sex 12 to 14 times a week. Now, to me, that's exhausting. God, with who? With who? Well, with, you know, this is interesting. You Mm -hmm. would think that it's with somebody younger. But no, I have a gentleman who did a YouTube video with me. I have a YouTube channel, and he did a video with me. We talked about how his treatments changed his life. And he mentioned that his girlfriend is not younger. She's actually a little bit older than him. Hmm. Now, she too came to me for vaginal rejuvenation. That's how they're getting their groove on. 
because he couldn't do a whole lot if she wasn't primed and ready to go too. I mean, that's a lot of sex. Yeah. How often do you either deal with couples or say, I need to see your partner to see what exactly the problem is? Well, some of them don't want their partner to know that they're even there. Right. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they come in in a hush-hush, you know, covert operation. You know, they want to pay, you know, under the table. They don't want it on a credit card that their spouse will see. Don't use this card. Don't use that card. Let me give you a check. You know, it's it's complicated sometimes. Um, And then they find that this helps. And then they are suddenly more open to discussing it with their partner. Some come in as couples. Some never involve their partner. Hmm. So all kinds. The most common procedure you do is what or deal with is what? Probably penis enlargement. Penis enlargement. Correct. Uh, I don't want to get you. I'm sure you'll devote episodes to, <laughs> to, to the process. Of just, how long are you out of commission? I say give me a week or two because, you know. A week or two? I, I say please try to not have sex for a week or two after at least. If not, you know. But you can make me magic week. in a month? I make magic happen a lot earlier than a month. In a visit? In a visit. Like, for instance, if I'm doing acoustic wave therapy, that's using sound waves to break down blockages and bring great blood flow into the penis and scrotum. Oh, well, that sounds and good. And that, that sounds, happens that's fine even quickly. if you don't need it. Well, I'm telling you. <laughs> I should charge extra. <laughs> exactly. This one's actually more pleasurable. Yeah. And for the woman, what is the what is the primary treatment or issue that women come in with? Well, women have a lot of issues with, um, you know, multiple things. Hormones change after a certain age. They get dry. The tissue sometimes can bleed with Mm -hmm. sex. I'm not talking wild sex. With regular sex, Mm -hmm. it can bleed. Um, Sometimes they get loose after childbirth. Mm -hmm. Laxity is a major problem. In fact, when the men come to me about wanting enlargement, my first question, because I have integrity, is asking them, listen, do you think you're too small or do you think your lady's gotten too big? And then they look at me with deer in headlights look because it never occurred to them. At some point, though, you, as a woman, you have to use your judgment. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's too small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean. Well, sometimes men come in for acoustic wave therapy and I might, you know, politely suggest enlargement. Or you're like, listen, that thing is plenty big. I've had that recently. Oh. I had somebody come in and he was wanting enlargement and I said, why? (laughs) Poor thing. (laughs) And he said, why not? And I said, but you don't need it. He said, I do. And I said, please explain to me why. Yeah. And he said, well, it will make me more confident. And I said, why do you need more confidence? You're successful. You look good. You have the biggest penis I've seen in a long time. And I see more penises (laughs) than the busiest hooker in Boca. I promise you. So if I'm impressed, you know, that's plenty big, but he doesn't think so. Wow. I know that is true that you, you're, again, you said earlier, like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not your therapist, but there's no big enough for somebody like that. For somebody like that. A lot of women who, who get breast enlargement and they keep Mm -hmm. going bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, it's, they're never quite satisfied. That's why I talk to them first. Mm -hmm. We don't just get them to swipe a card and, you know, get going. I want to know why they're there. Because I want to do the right thing across the board. Right. Um, and many happy patients. Many happy patients. They call me Dr. Sex Fairy for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to get into a lot of things on this podcast as you move forward. Tell, tell the, the audience what kind of things they can expect here. 
Just about anything. We are talking about relationships. We are talking about sex, of course. We are talking about male issues. We are talking about female issues. We are talking about transgender issues. If it involves sex, intimacy, parts, mm-hmm. we're discussing it. Right. Nothing and, is off limits. And some things people might not even know that, oh, that's sex too, or that that can is once removed or, mm-hmm. or you don't think about it as, oh, mm-hmm. that could affect my sex life or that could Absolutely. improve my sex life. Absolutely. We're here to just start a bigger discussion than just sex because mm-hmm. sex is never just about sex. Uh, and if somebody wants to get in touch with you and, and work with you or uh, get the vibrator out of their butt. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, it's easy to get in touch with me. They can either go to bavamedical.com. That's B-A-W-A medical.com. Or they can go to drsexfairypodcast.com. They can reach me any of those ways. And I'm on social media. Easy to find. I hope you enjoyed the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast today. I would love to continue this conversation with you. If you would like my top three secrets for amazing sex, send me an email at askme at drsexfairy.com and I will share them with you. Don't forget to follow this podcast and leave me a five-star review. Until next time.